Hi, I'm Ryan McGranigan, an aerospace engineer, data scientist, and all-around art, design, engineering, and science enthusiast. And you're listening to Origins, the show where we talk with thought leaders across eclectic areas of society about their origin stories and trajectories. The purpose is to highlight these thought leaders across different landscapes, to learn about the pivotal moments in their lives and to illustrate the ways of living that help you actionably re-examine your own assumptions and patterns. To provide ideas and stories to give you pause, bring you excitement, and be origins of new trajectories. Just a quick note that this is the final episode of Season 4 of the Origins Podcast. Over the past 12 episodes, we've been exploring topics central to our society today, including the philosophy of design and what it means for science and society, a more capacious view of artificial intelligence, becoming a planetary civilization, and the science and engineering that that requires, while being wise stewards of that knowledge. Thinking collectively rather than individually, in the groups and institutions that are showing us how, the global commons, what it means to flourish as individuals and as groups, and much more. This conversation is a perfect conclusion to that thread of episodes, both because it encompasses many of the ideas and because it sets up what will come in future episodes. The concept of healthy relationality comes up early and often, and is one that is acutely important to our moment in time. In many ways, this is the project of this show and my own life, growing the diversity and plurality of thought that makes us capable of higher capacities and that form the core of what it means to be alive. So this is a conversation to culminate season four, but it's also a launching off point. With this episode, we are creating a new space for interaction about the topics on this show and to explore a more healthy relationality, a newsletter on Substack called The Flourishing Commons. The purpose of the newsletter is to give space to wider and more capacious exchange and to build a community around it, a project in healthy relationality. Join us in the foment there by signing up. The link is in this show's notes and are on our podcast website, originspodcast.co. We will take a few weeks break after this episode while we set up for season five. But in the meantime, dig back through the archives for old episodes that remain relevant and fascinating. To get Season 5 episodes right to your library as soon as they come out, subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for being a part of this show and this community. Without further ado, please enjoy this beautiful and important conversation with Sarah Hendren. Sarah Hendren is a humanist in tech. This may seem like a strange statement, but it may be a perfect place to pick up Sarah's trajectory. It both describes her well as someone who makes a life defying categories and is at the same time too small for her expansive presence in this world. She is a brilliant designer, an affecting educator, and just might be the source of language that will transform the way you witness the world. Sarah is an artist, design researcher, writer, and professor at Olin College of Engineering. Her collaborative design projects of the last decade reframe the body, technology, and the conditions of disability. She is the author of What Can a Body Do? How We Meet the Built World, and a steward of ideas about how and where disability shows up in design. In her elegant and wonderful language, she furnishes an inventive tradition of remaking our everyday tools and environments that also carries the highest human stakes. It was named one of the best books in 2020 by NPR 
and won a Science and Society Journalism Prize. Her art and design work has been exhibited around the world on the White House lawn under Obama administration, the Victoria and Albert Museum, the Docks Center for Contemporary Art, the Vitra Design Museum, Seoul Museum of Art, and other venues, and is held in the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art and Cooper Hewitt Museum. She has been a nonfiction fellow at the Cary Institute for Global Good and a public scholar grantee from the National Endowment for the Humanities. She is a fellow in education policy at the New America Think Tank, where she is researching the future of work for adults with cognitive and developmental disabilities. Sarah holds a bachelor's in studio art from Wheaton College, a master's of arts in European history from UCLA, and a master's of design in design studies from the Harvard Graduate School of Design. She is the mother of three. Sarah's writing and thinking are exhilarating. And it is with the deepest excitement that we welcome her to Origins. Sarah, thank you for making time to do this with us. Thank you so much for that incredibly generous introduction. And it's really great to be here. Looking forward to this. Likewise, I've been looking forward to this for, for a long time. And so you call yourself a humanist in tech. And, and that idea of having people witness themselves and their roles in the world as humanists runs through your life and work. For me, this is an irresistible way into a conversation about your pivotal moments and the life you've made across them. So I, I wonder, how might you begin to trace the origins of thinking of yourself as a humanist in your childhood? Was there maybe a, a spiritual background to your childhood? Oh, yes, very much so. Um, yeah, I was raised, uh, born and raised in Arkansas and... Um, you know, in the, in the Bible belt as it's called. And that was certainly, you know, Flannery O'Connor says that the South is uh, Christ haunted. And I would say that is, uh, that was when I heard that for the first time, I thought I know exactly what she means. That is to say a church in every neighborhood, um, a church for nearly everyone I knew a kind of, um, and, and what does that mean? Right. I mean, you, you know, a deep commitment to, uh, principles of justice and morality and everyday ethics outside of ourselves, right? A kind of sense of um, belonging to uh, an ethos and a way of being. And also, um, yes, of course, the machinations of, you know, the way that that church gets tied up with politics and some of the ugly fallout of that, the church is a human institution. So, um, you know, I the further I get from that childhood, the more I see its deep dimensionality. And I suppose that is the humanist's commitment after all, which is to say, to attend closely to the specificity of life, um, shared life, human to human encounters, um, and the big questions in the humanities after all, which are the why questions. That is, why are we here? What is a good life? What does it mean to be happy or wise or flourishing? And, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't gravitate toward um, some of the uh, STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, or math. And I think instinctively, I thought, well, those are the abstractifying, rationalizing, standardizing uh, modes in, of measuring the world with some distance behind it, right? So in aggregate, at scale, with numbers and... and uh, and principles of physics and so on. I mean, in a way, I think that's actually an impoverished way of seeing those fields. But that was my sense was that my draw was to the humanities because it is this, this local and particular um, messiness of life, those qualities 
uh, hinged to those big why questions. And I thought, well, this is kind of my home. And um, so, so, and I knew from a very early age uh, that I would, that I would make a life in, in art, the arts and poetry for whatever, you know, series of reasons, but I, it has been a beautiful thing to hang on to those deep values, but to find myself in what is a really rich and beautiful and pristine way of describing and measuring the world. And that is in, in mathematics and engineering and technology. So I feel like I'm getting a do-over a little bit of my childhood by working in an engineering school. But the longer I go, the more I feel that that humanist identity uh, more and more cohesive and solidified in the midst of it. It's a beautiful thing to be uh, to have the muse kind of of engineering and tech, and to be someone uh, just more and more caught up in those big why questions. Thank you, and I love how it leads us into these fusion liminal spaces between art, science, engineering, design. And I think that's something that courses across your work. And, and you've written something that I love. You wrote, how do you build a laboratory environment that can make room for prototyping technologies in two modes, critique and repair? And you use this question as a way into shaping the lab of the future. And I think you also see the reach of this question more broadly to how all of us can help create a more participatory society in this high stakes civic age. So I'm hopeful that you could introduce us to this concept of critique and repair and how it better frames and offers language for mixing science, art, engineering, and design. Yeah, certainly. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot and talking about it with students. I'm lecturing at the Harvard uh, Graduate School of Design this spring and talking a lot to graduate students about this. It's probably helpful to listeners to just say that the locus for me of doing art and engineering, a kind of humanist commitment to technology, uh, is for me has been in the last 10 years, just um, in the space of disability and design. So people think of, when they think of disability and technology or disability and engineering or disability and design, they tend to think of very high tech novel forms of tools and and um uh, applications, digital software, hardware, but they tend to think of it as technologies to replace the parts or functions or capacities that have been lost on the body and to do this kind of problem solving work of bringing in, um, you know, machine parts to fix, right. To fix what's gone wrong. And sometimes of course, though, that problem solving is wished for, but meanwhile, I know from my own background in the humanities and as the mother of a child with down syndrome and, um, you know, close relative of a number of people uh, with disabilities of various kinds, that the truth of life with disability is actually far more uh, rich and complicated than uh, the the seeking, you know, for problem solving alone. In other words, if you look at uh, the history of deaf culture and um, deaf identity and deaf language and um, all the rich, uh, tradition uh, behind being deaf in the world, you will find plenty of people who don't actually uh, hold a lot of interest in, for example, cochlear implants or other kinds of um, tools and technologies to replace hearing. Some people do, but plenty of people do not. And there is, again, a rich and lively visual language of international sign languages in the, in the scores uh, you know, across the globe of people using uh, the visuality of sign to do their lives um, with perfect contentment and, and rich flourishing. So what that means is that you know, in an engineering context, 
we might go straight to what's called the repair, what you might think of as the reparative mode. We might say, well, you know, we do technology. So we know what technology is for. Aha, where are the problems in the world? Oh, disability is one. You know, here are people who can't hear. It must be that the highest use of our efforts would be toward solving that problem of hearing. And meanwhile, if you don't know, right, about the richness of deaf culture and its history, then you might miss a, a kind of moment where you'd pause and say, what if, what if people are not looking actually to be fixed in that reparative mode? And indeed, what if, you know, if you go to Gallaudet University down in Washington, D.C., you'll find uh, a thriving culture uh, of deaf culture there in deaf studies and deaf history and deaf politics. And in fact, you'll find a rich bioethical conversation happening there around uh, CRISPR and genetic engineering and kind of reproductive technologies that might be seeking to design deafness out of the future. You'll find a deaf culture there uh, uh, strongly in opposition to that and wanting to preserve actually deaf experience and uh, and deafness itself. And moreover, you'll find on the Gallaudet campus uh, an ingenious set of accommodations and design and engineering toward that doing that very thing, toward preserving and honoring deafness. So you would find, you know, the outside the offices in the Gallaudet uh, administration buildings, there are the light switches are outside. Um, the the front doors because you switch a light off and on uh, instead of ringing a doorbell or knocking on the door of a colleague. And there was a kind of somatic doorbell uh, in an old building. Gallaudet's been around for more than a hundred years. And so in in the pre-digital era, you know, uh, there would be a big uh, weight that would drop in a chamber that you'd pull a cord on the outside of a building to drop that weight. And people on the inside would feel that somatic register of that drop. And that would be, again, a, like a somatic um, alternate doorbell. So what that means is that that deaf people, like all disabled people, have been adapting their worlds all the time. And if you look actually at Gallaudet and that the, the strong opposition to that sort of bioethical conversation, if you look at the way that lively deaf culture has made and remade the world, then you actually are in a mode not of repair, not of cure, not of fixing and not of problem solving, but instead a kind of critical mode, not a negative critical mode, but critical in the sense that we're going to think twice now. What does it mean for uh, deaf culture to have been so lively living in a predominantly hearing world, but building communities and subcultures and ingenious architectural forms and all kinds of modes of living that are outside the norm? Well, now we're in the critical mode of asking what is normal and who tells us how and when and why? And what is it that we would desire for ourselves if and when our bodies were to change, when we come into relationship with people with atypical bodies and minds? That's a kind of critical mode that is endemic to the humanities. Again, it's that why question. Why should we be looking? When and why should we be looking for the reparative mode and fixes? And when would this critical mode, the pausing, the observance, the kind of wonder at the human body and all of its variations, when would that actually serve us well and even better? So it has been my big passion to both work in the laboratory with young engineers and designers who are equipped with all that beautiful how knowledge of, yes, solving problems, right? And you will find, and I have met in my life in the last 10 years, especially many disabled people who would say, that one that would call themselves disabled, 
uh, because they are disabled by a built world, not made for their bodies and not, not by the condition of their bodies themselves. But they would say, I would like better and more pragmatic tools and technologies, again, software and hardware and elegant blends of each to make my life more, uh, more smooth, you know, less full of hurdles and barriers. But you will find in parallel a beautiful, rich tradition of disability culture. And in fact, a, a lively bioethical, humanitarian, historical, cultural conversation about how all of us should think about what constitutes the norm, uh, what is the, how do we preserve the richness and biodiversity and cultural diversity and intellectual diversity of the human sensorium and all of its capacities. And for me, any sufficiently complex issue such as disability, it, the deep humanness of disability, no one domain would suffice to uh, address it. So you do need tools and technologies for a more accessible world. You also need better questions and you need that attention to, to humanity. So when I call for critique and repair, I'm trying to you know apply you know commonplace language to just keep reframing what is an education for? What is it for at an engineering school? Well, yes, tools and technologies, but those that live in people's lives. What is a kind of critical education for in the liberal arts sense? Yes, modes of analysis, critique, even in that negative critical sense of kind of like, where are the forms of power and suppression and how do we pay attention to those histories, but also with the, the agency of the builder on the reparative side. So I find myself you know, kind of speaking to folks in engineering with one kind of side of my brain and then kind of switching gears and speaking to young people in a liberal arts environment, uh, making a strong defense for that reparative engineering mode. But my hope is that they uh, both see each other. I mean, I think it's, you won't find any lack of people saying like, oh yes, we need well-rounded engineers. Like, oh, we need people, you know, kind of like everybody will affirm the need to do, be able to do both. But my sense is that there's a lot of flimsy claims about what constitutes a well-rounded education. And we just keep needing more language, newer frameworks, uh, reinvigorated language like critique and repair. And you could think of others to try to keep a hold of that, that difficult vision, you know, of what it means to really attend to the kind of the biggest conundrums and, and kind of fascinating research areas that are in front of us. I love that you introduce a more rich and robust way of thinking about the intersection of the arts, sciences, engineering, and design. We talk about that a lot on the show, people like yourself who go to these liminal spaces between those fields as a, as a way to think about this in a, in a richer way. And I think your framing of this in these modes of critique and repair is especially helpful. And, and you've also written that the possibility is imminently available to build an undivided house, one where critique and repair are seen as complementary, if sometimes contentious modes of research, and where the opportunity to mix and build a big body of work that contains both is convivially welcome. Yeah. I'd love to explore this with you. You mentioned that you've been talking with grad students about these questions, about trying to identify the questions that help us hold this maybe contentious, contradictory idea in mind and, and function within that. What do those conversations look like in developing such a sensibility? Yeah, that's such a good question. Thank you for it. I mean, right. I, th I suppose it's it's useful here to, to describe like, okay, you know, 
if I've said to you just now, okay, what are the what's the best case scenario for the repair mode in engineering? It's like, yes, people, you know, on the technological side using the best that technology can do in order to address real authentic human problems. So if we dial that out and say, what's the excessive version of that? Like the, the calcified and rigid and overly eager, you know, kind of like what's the what's the flip side, the negative side of repair? Well, it's the excesses of tech, right? It's tech, tech un, un, unleashed and kind of unpoliced and unregulated. And we see that everywhere, right? We see a kind of, I have a hammer, where are the nails of the world? I'm going to, you know, Silicon Valley sort of move fast and break things. You know, I don't probably need to tell your audience, you can find the excesses of what started out in the repair, you know, in our world today in the form of kind of unchecked development, right? On the other hand, in critique, right? What's happening in the kind of humanities classroom and higher education all over the place? In its best scenario, what is it? Uh, yeah, close reading of uh, texts, um, real attention to the locality and specificity of the human body, but also human life and cultures and histories, wisdom traditions that help us ask those big questions, um, anthropology to, to draw our attention really closely to humans and their settings and behavior. What's the kind of flip side of that, of critique? Well, it's it's equally it can be equally calcified. It can be equally committed to a kind of unmasking of power relations at the heart of all human endeavors. And, and I don't think people in the scholars that I know mean to do that, but that is a kind of a historian I studied with at UCLA talked about the kind of knee-jerk, ironic glance of the historian, for example. Like she would say it too often. We look back and there's a kind of winking at the reader where we say, those people in the past, they were so enlightened, unenlightened in all of these ways. Let me now enumerate all those ways for you, the end. And the ironic glance there is saying, we know, right, in 2022, that these people were so, you know, kind of blinkered and, and narrow in their mindsets. And the flattery that goes with that by us looking at them and characterizing them in that way and 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 how that that unmasking work it's valuable, but it also calcifies at the other polarity from the reparative, right? It calcifies into critique alone that has a kind of allergy to optimism, Ryan, I would say. I don't know if this is your observation, but my my observation is that, you know, you know, again, I'm I come from the humanities. I'm so nourished and trained by it, but I witness people, you know, retreating to the kind of moral high ground of critique. And they are sufficiently wary of and suspicious of the way big tech operates in our lives. But what that means is that they have no steps forward to actually do that reparative work, either themselves from that good critical humanist vantage point, and, and certainly not in partnership then with the builder's agency, the, the how folks, those engineers uh, uh, and technologists of the world. So since we know, right, that those polarities can really dig in and, and you get people in, in the proverbial lab space or studio, you get folks on the defensive right away, right? You get uh, maker types, engineer types going, well, you folks are, are just about unmasking and kind of criticizing all the time anyway. So I'm, you know, this conversation is over. Like I'm going to go to my laboratory and I'm going to build the thing because I actually do know how to do the building. And, you know, I guess we're done here. And on the other side, the humanists, again, feel either intimidated by people who can code, you know, uh, just because they can, or, and then some combination of feeling suspicion about technology in toto, right? So, that, so that, that's also a non-starter. So when I say a convivial welcome, 
<laughs> Ryan, it is the simple and profound uh, work of, of relational human commitments to say, and this is where the humanist, you know, like arrives to the scene. Y- you have to, you have to decide in this room, in this kind of laboratory or studio, if we're going to build something together, if we're going to prototype some tools or technologies for desirable futures, and we're going to have those informed by all of our good critical question asking mode, what's how's that going to go? Is that an intellectual exchange? Partly, it's mostly a relational and personal exchange. So Kathleen Fitzpatrick wrote this book called Generous Thinking, which again, I think people hear and go like, oh yeah, that's self-evident and obvious. It's exceedingly rare to find people with enough security, enough uh, epistemic humility, and enough genuine kindness <laughs> to walk into a room and say, I have some skill set, let's say, in the critical. Oh, I have some skill set in the reparative. This thing that I know how to do, my wheelhouse, it gives me some affordances, some literacies, some capacities in the world. It also stops at a certain point, And that's the point at which I need this other mode to do that way of working. And I have found, I will say, you know, at Olin, I work with, you know, computer scientists and roboticists all the time. And there is that we have formed together by a practice and it is a personal commitment and practice, a relational model of change, we might say, that they they come to me and say, I want to be sure not to get this wrong. You know, this AI project, uh, can you can you talk to us about disability studies? You know, what what is some of the 101 that I would need to um, try to know they're, they're not going to be PhDs in in the humanities, but there is that kind of trust, friendship, colleagueship that has to be in the room for people to do their best work. I mean, how does that sound to you? It can sound hopelessly naive, I think, in some ways. Well, it resonates with me deeply. Um, I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald who wrote, and and I see a connection of this in, in what you've been describing that the sign of a first-rate intelligence is one that can hold contradictory ideas in mind at once and yeah. act towards them. And I see that in this critique and repair, and you mentioned their polarities, yeah. um, but, it, but it's so important. I think being able to hold that contradiction, being able to make progress and move towards that in the presence of both of those poles is so important. And, and I think I see in your work something that's so inspiring to me. I mean, you talk about speaking from a spirit of intellectual freedom and friendship, which is something that I think is endlessly beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how you're how you try and cultivate that in your students, for instance, and, and maybe how that took shape in your life, or maybe is still taking shape. Yeah, I mean, I actually like that you named both intellectual freedom and friendship in the same. I mean, I think you were searching for a friendship and then, but freedom is actually, uh, you know, like it's, it's beautiful twin. And I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, I mean, um, Aristotle, you know, in the Nicomachean ethics, he devotes two whole books to friendship, to friendship as a kind of locus of practice, as a kind of political node, you know, socio-political node of how we how we build the world. And I think it's sort of undertreated as a, as a disposition uh, and as a, as an intellectual endeavor, perhaps, you know, like um, we might say, well, we're intellectual collaborators or research counterparts or something, colleagues, but the spirit of friendship, I think, I mean, I've I've heard uh, 
the critic Becca Rothfeld talk about friendship as a recognition relation. So she has like a hyphen between those, a recognition relation, meaning I see, I really do see the humanity and the gifts and the recipro- the mutual, you know, kind of recognizably human qualities of this other person. And I'm gonna um I'm gonna proceed with that recognition, you know. And and when you think about it, that that's quite a miracle. It's a miracle that any of us can kind of get out of our own uh like deep deeply hermetically sealed consciousness and connect to another person at all. Like it's a, it's a sort of miracle of just dialogue and um, shared perception of, of the world, but even more so um, to cultivate a spirit of intellectual friendship. Uh, it, it requires that kind of generosity, that sense that I am really doing that recognition relation work across uh, my, you know, it, it does require that kind of commitment to, uh, divesting myself of the the moral self-regard of my own training and expertise, right? And I think anytime you get people, researchers or teachers in the room, we all just carry around a kind of explanatory paradigm of the world, you know, like, because I am trained in psychology, now I describe the world, people, motivations, right? The entirety of our transactions in psychological terms. That's one explanatory paradigm. It's a really good one, really useful for all of us. But when we are trained in one, we just tend to cling to it in a way that feels, right? It, it flatters our own sense uh, of our of our deep perception and sense-making of the world, but it doesn't allow for some of that what is what is the truth, uh, you know, uh, of of being alive, which is that no explanatory paradigm is really complete. So we have to sort of say to each other in that recognition relation way, oh, I see you, your humanity here. Um, I can give and receive, uh, you know, gifts and and challenges in turn. I can, with all my language, with all my, you know, sharing meals together, with all of my um, all my gestures, you know, uh, say to you in a hundred ways, you're welcome here. And also what can we build together? What, what can we, it just takes a kind of lightness and commitment that is, you know, again, for Aristotle so long ago to, to elevate friendship to the most important ethical matters of our lives. I mean, you think about that, you know, uh, the enduring quality of that. I've just been thinking a lot about it. What do you think? friendship wise i think it's very important and i think it has both this this self exploration importance in understanding that context is critical to everything and and that we need to kind of enrich our experience in context of of any of any moment and then i think it has very practical applications too daniel allen is a as a philosopher and and um and a political scientist who talks about the future of democracy. And she talks about a healthy relationality being yes. critical to that. Yes. Uh, and so I think it's, you know, I keep a, I keep a note in my phone that I constantly revisit just as I'm moving throughout my days and experiencing and reading and, and listening to things. And it's about the curriculum of the future. It's this idea of what do our citizens need to have? How do we need to improve ourselves? What does the education of the future for a flourishing, I loved your word earlier, for a rich flourishing of our society look like? And, and what is the what are the literacies? What are the sensibilities for that? And I think relationality is something that appears across that note for me over yeah. and over and over again. Yeah. And, and I think it might come into your work. You teach ethnography as kind of a prerequisite to doing any of this work to your students. 
And, yeah. and I wonder how that, how you would begin to respond to that. Yeah, let me just underline and join your uh, invocation of Danielle Allen. I mean, I think she is one of our truly great thinkers. Um, uh, I just am, I could not admire more her commitments and her talk about somebody who is so deeply trained in, you know, as a classicist in the humanities and brings it to the most pragmatic problem solving. I mean, folks should look at her. She co uh, edited this kind of recommendation report for the, I want to say for the uh, Academy of Arts and Sciences about, you know, kind of like 20 moves we could make tomorrow to shore up our civic structures. And they're really pragmatic things like ranked choice voting. And I mean, she just, she just is so committed to the most robust, you know, kind of historically informed work and also the most kind of on the ground, um, you know, ways that we can build our lives better now, you know, in the near and medium term future. And she does talk a lot about healthy relationality. And I think, I mean, my own choice to, after 10 years on Twitter, to, to get off Twitter was in part to try to do that for myself, to recognize that healthy relationality is a practice. It's cultivated. It easily corrodes. Uh, that, that again, is a kind of, I think, epistemic humility that for me felt necessary of just sort of saying, you know, this is in 10 years of using Twitter, um, I went from thinking, oh, what a really interesting kind of generative space of sharing links and finding things on the web that I wouldn't find otherwise to being um, a, a kind of narrowing and to the, 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 the flat irony and the distancing effect of the, of the UI of that. I mean, just, just the built into the machinery. I felt like this is, this is actually uh, not just neutral, but, but, but corroding my sense of what healthy relationality looks like just day in and day out, just saying. I also wanted to say that Alan's idea of participatory readiness as the horizon for an education, Ryan, I mean, because you were saying, what is, what is the education? What is the curriculum of the future? Uh, in my role as PI of this project called Sketch Model uh, at Olin, which brings more arts and humanities experiences to engineers, we have invoked Alan's idea of participatory readiness as a beautifully elegant, you know, kind of uh, horizon for what is it? What is it we're trying to do? The readiness uh, we often frame education now as a readiness for professional work, and of course, yes, it's good. Uh, that's that's all fine and good. But but the older and enduring idea is participatory readiness that that includes but supersedes professional readiness. So it includes this kind of she has this three part formulation about what that looks like, how we deliberate together. It's practices of of democracy both of strong forms of protest, but also the town hall and it's, you know, kind of giving and taking. So I encourage people to take a look at that. She has an essay called what is education for in the Boston review. That's a great succinct look at that stuff. Um, but I want to get back to the, where you went from, from there, uh, Ryan, which was toward uh, relationality in general. Is that what you were, is that what you were prompting? Absolutely, yeah, and in specifically in your classroom because yeah. ethnography and is a is a central component of that. That's right. Yes, and I'll say you know I'm quite lucky to work at Olin College where I've learned so much from my colleagues, including um, my colleague Katrin Lynch, who's a trained anthropologist and does deep work in this and has been for a long time. She has a class called Engineering for Humanity that pairs uh, undergraduate engineering majors with older adults living in assisted living uh, nearby our campus. And the, the, the front end, especially of the class, is just beautifully enriched by ethnographic practice and also deep reading in the anthropology of aging to try to really enliven students' imagination for what it means to grow older. And of course, there are all kinds of stereotypes and flattened ideas uh, about 
uh, age as loss and diminishment, full stop, when really it's a much richer um, life than that. And so anthropology is how you attend to what people are actually self-reporting about their lives, but also what is their setting and what does it look like in their kitchen and how do they talk about their families and how do they interact with their, their tools and their everyday tasks? All of that is the quality of the anthropologist to observe the human in his or her context. And um, that we feel like is the is the space from which good questions in design and technology flow. I also uh, helped to teach a class. I didn't create this class. I inherited it. It's been running at Olin for um, 15 or 20 years called collaborative design, which is just that, that we, it's design, you know, across scales of design. So it's not predetermined to be hardware or software or products or furniture or architecture. It could be any of those things. And we throw sophomore students into the deep end of doing anthropology in our phase one. They, all they do is select a people group um, out, off of campus. So not students like themselves, but people who are unlike themselves. So they'll work with uh, folks in the New England fishery uh uh, industry, um, street artists, uh, you know, firefighters and EMTs, and they go and do open-ended interviews, which is really hard, especially for engineers when they're used to problem sets and so on. Uh, but they do, we do this kind of like, what are, what are people's motivations? What are their assets and what are their challenges? What does a day look like for them? Draw a journey through a typical interaction for an animal shelter worker and they spend several weeks uh, up front, and this is a required class for all sophomores. They spend several weeks up front, just going, "How do I get to know you? You know, how do I how do I speak to somebody with whom I don't imagine I have immediate kind of affinities?" And sometimes I think that that's the biggest deliverable of the class at all. We end up going through the whole design, ideation, prototyping process by the end, but that the ethnography really leads. And right, the relationality there is both systemic in the sense that it's like, look, if you want to be an engineer and not in basic science, you've opted for a thing that inherently is in the world and contextual, right? So so here's, here's your chance to do that. Go out and observe people in their contexts, attend to that first and let it then feed your ideas for the rest of your college career. Um, but the other relationality is at the micro scale, like where we're saying to people, how, you know, we're teaching and modeling for students. How do you ask a question that isn't a kind of robotic interview survey of yes, no questions that you could just as well do online? In other words, how do you, how do you walk in and sit down with a person at their kitchen table and say, I see you have three images of your family here. Tell me about them. Uh, can you say more about that? I wonder whether, um, might it be the case that, so you're asking, there's a fine art to asking those questions that are sufficiently open-ended that people can tell you what's really on their minds. And they will, you can actually get to know people uh, pretty quickly in the space of an hour. And that is always surprising to students, but you see what I mean, right? You are practicing. I, I do think that that is a small R, yes, you know, relationality that is, a, that is after all a civic muscle that you work. How do you, not just for their jobs as engineers, but for how they show up at the school committee meeting, you know, 15 years hence, how they, you know, go to the town hall about the redesign of their main street in their town. All of that requires that relationality and an ability to dream the future together with critique and repair, you know, fully intact. Thank you. It's exciting to, to have a glimpse into, into how to work with your students. And it's, it's such an exciting thing. I, I think relationality is something that I want uh, 
I hope people will think more about. You know, Trabian Shorter is just as you were talking, this came to mind to me, has this has this beautiful idea of asset framing. Mm-hmm. And he uses some similar language to you in saying that we should look at others first as what their attributions are, what their contributions are, and, and thinking about who is the spirit in front of me. And so that's kind of this humanistic perspective, bringing it back to, to your approach to your work, Yeah, I think is, is so important. And, you know, I'd love to trace or have you think about how you might begin to trace that sensibility in your own life. You know, your oldest child, you mentioned um, Graham was diagnosed with Down syndrome shortly after his birth in the early mm-hmm. aughts. And if you're comfortable with it, I'd like to talk about this with you because what you've written about it has such resonance, mm-hmm. not just from the particularity of your experience, but because it, it touches on a more universal experience that I think reaches everyone in some way. Yeah. And I think it will lead us into some directions in the way your life has unfolded. I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I'd like to ask about your experience of becoming that followed his birth, because I think it might be a framing for others. Yeah. I'm curious, how would, how would you, how did you move through the world after that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's a really good question. And sometimes I think, sometimes I think all my work, which is, you know, comes in part from your life that sometimes I summarize it as like an ethics of under construction, like becoming for me is that the the under construction, the reason why I love prototyping is because it is under construction. It is a thing trying to get born. And I do think that the difficulty over adulthood probably is to is to maintain a commitment to that kind of becoming and to and to indeed welcome the kind of experiences that would expand uh, our inner landscape and our on our, our outer horizons in that work of becoming right that we that we welcome even the scary stuff and that's what it that's what it meant of course to say yes to parenting a, a child with Down syndrome. I mean. We did not get a, a prenatal diagnosis. I got a false negative on a an early test. I also uh, decided not to get an amniocentesis because I knew that we wouldn't terminate uh, for for a diagnosis of Down syndrome. So still, it was a surprise. Uh, nonetheless, again, I knew what I was. I was an informed, you know, kind of research heavy first time parent, and I understood, you know, the the inherent unknowns that come with parenting any child. So then this child arrives who is not the child that we expected. And, you know, my, one of my dear colleagues and friends, Jonathan Adler at Olin, he studies narrative identity in adulthood. So how we tell our stories. And um, he says that in adulthood, when something really big happens to you, you either assimilate it into your preformed story, right? Like, here's how I'm going to make this work with the story I already have of myself. Or you accommodate and change your story to make room for this new thing. And I'm endlessly fascinated by that idea because I do think that Graham's arrival, so I was a first-time parent, I have three children, but he was the eldest. Um, I, I really, it really knocked me sideways in the sense that I disability had been in my life, in my family, but had not really arrived in, in this way, that is to say, um, you know, Down syndrome is like, at, it's this kind of canary in the coal mine about the future of reproduction. I mean, it's, it is waving its little genetic flag from the womb. It is an on or off switch. You have it or you don't. It's easily identifiable by technology. 
a majority of fetuses with Down syndrome are terminated in the United States. They're, you know, in the wealthy, strong social safety net countries of the world, like in Northern Europe, Down syndrome is becoming almost non-existent. So to enter that big landscape really did knock me sideways because here's the thing, right? You have a baby. Talk about the humanist in tech. I mean, a baby arrives with radical specificity and you are this kind of deep animal love and attention and affection and attachment proceeds. I mean, there you are smitten by this. We were smitten by this child, lit up our days. And then you, uh, this enormous bioethical standardized distance of numbers uh, landscape unfolds before you when you have a child with Down syndrome. So I immediately started going to, you know, I had to go to a bunch of specialist doctors right away. We had to, you know, get right into occupational therapy and physical therapy and speech therapy. And I suddenly started to see the clinical arrangement and kind of mapping of a diagnosis, which is a meaningful diagnosis, right? A genetic condition that affects globally all the cells, but that was being mapped onto a person, a person that, that the world has never seen before and will never see again. But I was witnessing too, you know, even among our friends and well-meaning loved ones, once we got his diagnosis, people, you know, it was like one day he was Graham, singular human. And the next day he had a Down syndrome diagnosis confirmed. And then it was like, he became a Down syndrome person. And people were trying to tell us things like what he would be like when he grew up or what his sense of humor would be or whatever. He became a kind of type. And I thought, man, this can't be, this can't be how, how, how you describe a, a radical individual. Like it was just this kind of just profound clash of, of organizing principles for talking about a person. And so all I can say is that that becoming thing, Ryan, is, you know, the, the theologian William May talks about um, cultivating an openness to the unbidden in our lives. So the unchosen. And that, that from that, from the unbidden also arises meaning, joy, surprise, purpose. And I think that militates against so much of what our regnant order tells us, right? That only infinite choice, only unimpeded progress, only maximal freedom, only the absence of ties, only the absence of obligation, that those are the things that make us free. And I have come to see, and I've been so blessed and gifted in my life with an unbidden uh, form of parenting from which the most becoming of my life unfolded. I mean, I, it, it's astonishing to me. And and I met all these people. I just had a woman in my classroom yesterday from the Kennedy School, not even in, in my in the design school, but who's blind um, and who I would never have met, you know, if I had not had my son in a, in a hundred ways said yes to his arrival and from which a creative kind of burst of energy and imagination came forth and and it became a node by which I would meet people from all over the world with atypical bodies and minds who said, hey, we're we belong to something together, you know? And I, I want to hasten to say, Ryan, that like it, it, it is not um uncomplicated 
I think right now about career choices that I'm making and life choices that I'm making to try to anticipate being in some support system with Graham for the long term, right? So he is not a, a child who will grow up and fly the nest in an economic sense or a daily support sense. And so people will look at my life and say, well, that, that, is, a, that is a lifelong obligation. And they are correct, right? I am thinking what happens when we die. I am thinking about his siblings. I am thinking about his cousins who adore him and who some of whom have gone into disability work in part because of him. You cannot account for the unbidden and its limitations, yes, and what it makes possible in the form of becoming. And sometimes I think, I mean, I am still uh, a religious person, a a devout Christian. I, I do think that uh, and you don't have to be religious to believe this, but for me, it is especially resonant in that way that the it is actually the limitations on our experience that also give us freedom. I really do think that. Thank you for sharing, Sarah. I think your perspective and just listening to you uh, talk about this becoming is so inspiring to me, and and it sparks so many thoughts in me and I appreciate you sharing your experiences with us. You know, one of the things you mentioned that stuck out to me was you still, you hold this idea of creating a a creative collaborative environment, even within your family. And I think it is, it may, perhaps it led to this idea of the book that you wrote in trying to create that collaborative, creative conversation at a more society-wide level. The line from your book that, I, that comes to mind to me is that you wrote, there's a brute force and impoverished definition of disability at work in the world. And you speak about how disability is about all of us, not just those we traditionally think of as disabled. Yeah. And do you trace the seeds of this question that sparked your your recent book which is which is fantastic and beautiful and important to your experience of becoming in in creating a collaborative environment for your family certainly i mean i think creative collaboration comes from you know witnessing the adaptive human sensorium and the, the adaptive human animal in you know in its environment so i mean partly you know watching graham as a as an infant, as a toddler, learn the world and do the world, um, you know, with half the muscle tone, you know, that a typical child does. And then watching my daughter come along and do things so differently because her, you know, neurotypical and, you know, typical bodily arrangement and watching the the miracle of that of, of young children learning the world. And also, you know, when you're watching that up close, you can't help but see that help the needing of help, which is built into the engineering of assistive technologies and you know rehabilitation engineering, all that. If you're really up close to it, you can't help but see that help is both given and received by everyone. So in other words, yes, Graham's younger siblings help him with certain tasks. They're just as much Graham as their older brother assists them. So uh, in terms of, you know, his forms of encouragement, his senses of humor, his, you know, tasks around the house. And 
So once you start to witness that, then you start to see the strongest critique of disability that disability studies as a field brings, which is a critique of individualism as the myth which organizes any of our lives, right? But many of us, if we don't have experience with disability ourselves, do nonetheless live by that kind of myth that like we're we're proudest of ourselves when we need very little. We'd rather be on the giving end of help than on the receiving end of help. And we are afraid of our, you know, aging and mortality and perhaps avoid the subject of disability because it reminds us of that kind of frailty. But disability, when you share a life with someone, you know, again, for, the, for us for the long term and, and disability kind of collects you in a way, then you're able to go like, wait a minute, you know, and again, disabled people and scholars and activists and artists of all kinds have been saying this for decades. Help is actually human the giving of it and the receiving of it. Okay. So that means help is probably in a desirable future. Okay. So that means we don't probably want to build a creative collaborative future where help is not part of joyful human relationality. Like we, we probably want to preserve that, that giving and receiving that's part of our purpose. It's fundamentally human to both have needs and to be contributing um, and giving to others needs. So you know, disability, you know, it, it defies and transcends ultimately the categories of identity that I think people are so enamored of right now, because it does, it just knocks at that myth entirely. We all entered into the world highly dependent on other people. Most of us will exit the world also acutely dependent on other people. So we might locate ourselves then in a continuum of giving and receiving help. And we might see that you know, yes, as a sometimes a form of loss and diminishment, but also a form of, in your words, creative collaboration, right? That's where you can say, you know, in the book, I tell stories of people over and over creatively collaborating to build lives worth living in situations where their bodies are acutely outside the norm. So we meet a man, you know, with ALS named Steve Sailing, who lives here outside Boston who got a diagnosis of ALS and immediately went to work because he was a landscape designer by training, immediately went to work designing a residence where he could live and where other people with ALS and MS could live in a, a strong automation kind of residence environment. So he has a, a motorized wheelchair and a, a tablet, you know, that, uh, and a cursor, a tablet mounted on that wheelchair, a little tiny cursor that's on the nose bridge of his glasses sits on that frame. And that cursor talks to the a tablet that's mounted on the chair. And with that mechanism, he can open all the doors and call the elevator and raise and lower the blinds and turn on his media. So there's a lot of automation, creative, collaborative, redesigned space to make his life easier and yes, more independent. But the bigger truth there is that he is dependent on a human economy of help and his life is worth living. I mean, that's what's so astonishing, right? Is that people, ALS is a really hard diagnosis. Everybody would rejoice tomorrow, including Steve, if there were to be a medical cure. And it can also be true. And this is your thing about holding several, you know, ideas in your mind at once, right? It can also be true that Steve has built creatively collaborated to make a life worth living in acute physical circumstances that too few people have any imagination for at all. And so what does that mean, you know, to any of us looking at 
the the inherited built state of the world and saying, could it be different? Could it be otherwise? And watching Graham certainly adapt and and remake his world in such asset driven ways, as you said. I mean, I think this is a strong frame from community development generally, just trying to look at people with their competencies and not as uh, having problems. I mean, very few people, the teachers that Graham works with every day get just how incredibly clever and adaptive he is. A lot of people who meet him just kind of in a cursory way, imagine him in a kind of flattened, you know, you know, special needs and so on. And they, they'll never see that, you know, the, the, the richness and dimensionality of his inner world. But if you look at disability and design, you can start to see it. Thank you. I will point people to your fantastic book and in, and I'm cognizant of the time here and I want to be respectful of, of your time. I, I want to add something where I think is a nice place to point people on the heels of your book, you began a, a newsletter in June of 2021 as a way to take up ideas in the long wake of your book. And, and maybe quickly, I'm just curious about how that project began and, and where is that wake now? Yeah, well, um, it's funny. I mean, I, I some of the newsletter thing is kind of about that healthier relationality, Ryan. Like uh, for me, the newsletter, I get a bunch of newsletters in my email feed. I use a uh, a software application called Hey H E Y that sep- that lets me put into the feed all those newsletters, and for me that is a healthy relationality. I am reading and writing more complete thoughts, and when people have something to say about it, they write me back in their own names, and you know um, that that for me that's a form of thinking in public that is that embodies a healthier relationality than some of the social media. Um, you know, user interface kind of defaults of, of quote tweets and retweets and dunking and so on. So that's partly that just a way to think in public. Um, and partly because, so, you know, my book goes through all scales of design from prosthetic limbs to household kitchen gadgets, to furniture, to, um, architecture and buildings, to street and urban planning. And it ends with a chapter called clock, which is about Graham and about misfitting in time and about developmental disability, and I, you know, I left off thinking, right, uh, there, there aren't a lot of prosthetic parts. There aren't a lot of assistive technologies still that are devoted to thinking about cognitive and developmental disability. So that's what I'm doing, you know, this year in my role uh, at New America, back at the New America Think Tank in Education Policy, thinking about, we might call it service design in my field, that is to say, the design of interactions in spaces to think about workforce development for somebody like Graham. I guess, in other words, my queries now are about where the the open-ended questions about where the book left off. And part of it is about cognitive and developmental disability, because it's just not obvious how prosthetics show up uh, to make that bridge for people in those lives. But also, I think I'm asking myself, you know, when I invoked Aristotle before, it's because I've been doing some kind of like pre-modern and classical reading to try to get at this deeper question of human flourishing at all. Like if, if you're looking at design and technology for human happiness, what constitutes that happiness and what is the role of work or education um, in a good life for any of us um, and also for Graham, but I, I guess I'm back to the, my humanist roots in even philosophy. I think I, I think I got a minor in philosophy. I have to check my transcript, but like that was a big passion of mine, those big questions. And so I'm kind of, I find that, 
themes kind of come and go in, in a long life. So that's where I am now. But I love newslettering. I think it's like a really great form. Well, I love your newsletter. Thank you for putting those thoughts out and thinking in public with with everyone. Uh, it, it's fantastic. So Sarah, we have just a few minutes left and I'd like to transition now to the final part of the show, which is just a quick set of four questions and answers that we call the lightning round. Are you ready? Uh, sure. Lightning? Yeah. Great. So the first question is, what is one book that you feel has impacted you unlike anyone else? Or is there a book that you have a special relationship to? Yeah. Um, it would have to be Annie Dillard's book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which was written the year I was born. She was very young when the Pulitzer for it, but I didn't read it until I was in college. And it, it just, uh, yeah, changed my life to my relationship to seeing and perception. Thank you. Number two, what passion outside of your own field has most importantly helped set your trajectory? Yeah, I'd have to say philosophy, which I sort of got a little bit of undergrad training in, but really it keeps coming back. It's always, it's the essential first principles questions. I'm just drawn to it. Or maybe fiction, which is kind of a lifeblood for me. People moving through time, made up characters as a mirror for one's own experiences. I can resonate with that. And I've been thinking a lot about world building and, and both of those things are in a yeah. that. Yeah. Number three, what is your latest and most consuming passion? And what is making your heart sing right now? It really is like medieval philosophy uh, and theology. Um, looking at those pre-moderns, I, I, it's just helping me to, to, recover a long sense of history. I think so much of our rights talk and discourse proceeds as though enlightenment rationalism was the beginning of time. And I'm just recovering and being so nourished by um, these folks who saw so much about the essential questions from way before, you know, the printing press, <laughs> like way, way before. And I'm just fed by deep time right now. Mm. I love the concept of, of deep time. Yeah. The, the final question that I ask, and I, I sometimes feel like I need to preface this, I, we use this question in closing just because we, we like to make this about the human as well. And to understand that we don't want to just present the, the great things, um, the things that are easy to talk about. And so I ask, what is one thing that you have truly and fully screwed up in trying to give a, a doorway into that? Yeah. Wow, so many. How did how to choose? I I really um I when my children were very small, I I really lost perspective about time passing and I spent a lot of time wishing for them to get older. And I when I saw that movie Boyhood it just just knocked me out because I thought, oh, they they actually will grow up. I, I I needed more help for the perspective, and I didn't get it when they were younger. And I look back now, I was so underwater, three little kids, and I think about how precious that was. And people said to me, "This too shall pass, and you should enjoy every moment." And I just wanted to punch people. Like I just didn't. It was so it was so intense. And I look back and I think, Sarah, why didn't you? Why didn't you ask for more help? Talk about giving and receiving. 
why didn't you ask for more help? And why didn't you see that everything passes away? You know, and so I wish I, I wish I had had that perspective then. Thank you. Thank you for your openness and, and honesty and, and candor on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Sarah. Thank you for your brilliant work as a humanist in tech and the transformational language that you give the world as a design activist and a teacher. I point, will point people to your blog and, and absolutely go pick up your book. It's, it's wonderful. Subscribe to your writing and, and let your, how you witness the world be changed. Sarah Hendren, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you so much, Ryan. What a pleasure. I really appreciate it. We appreciate you. Thank you so much, Sarah.